Hey guys, great news. Thanks to our partner Beta, this week we're giving away Withings Body Plus Wi-Fi Smart Scales. This scale has high accuracy and full body composition. Body Plus includes coaches, rewards, and it automatically sends all of your data to the free HealthMate app. With tools at hand such as trend screens and nutrition tracking, the Withings Body Plus Wi-Fi Smart Scale is the perfect way for users to track and achieve their weight loss goals. Enter this week's giveaway at www.mission.org giveaway for a chance to win a free Withings Body Plus Wi-Fi Smart Scale. Or if you want to purchase, go directly to www.withings.com and enter Mission Daily 20 to get 20% off the Withings Body Plus Smart Scale. This code is only valid on withings.com or visit your nearby beta store. Welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, Chad sits down with Jennifer Sarin, CFO and treasurer at Smartsheet. Smartsheet is a SaaS company with an application that is used for collaboration and work management. Smartsheet allows you to assign tasks, track project progress, manage calendars, share documents, and much more, all while using a spreadsheet-like user interface. Prior to Smartsheet, Jennifer was the CFO for Quotient Technology, formerly known as Coupons.com, VP of Finance of Box and eBay, and Director of Corporate Finance at Cisco. Jennifer has frequently been recognized by Treasury and Risk Management Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in finance. And she's led the charge and successfully IPO'd two companies throughout her career, first at Box and now at Smartsheet. On this episode, Chad and Jennifer sit down to discuss Wall Street and Silicon Valley, how both places look at investing in companies, and where she sees innovation for the field of financial management heading into the future. Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Nice so to be here. You brought in some uh, bags. Where are you traveling from? So I was visiting my husband uh, this weekend. He lives in Los Gatos, California, and Smartsheet is based in Bellevue, Washington. So I came down here for the podcast, but took the opportunity to spend a few days with him. And I have a big bag of uh, vegetables oh, from cool. the garden that he planted. So are you splitting time now? How, how are you balancing that uh, travel back and forth? Or are I, you traveling? I live full time in Bellevue, Washington. Gotcha. I'm up in Bellevue, Washington the majority of the time. But when I have business trips to come back to, or a couple weeks ago, I came back because my daughter got engaged in front of the Golden Gate Bridge and we were hiding in the bushes. So I was asked to come back for that. Then I come back. Very cool. I was hoping to kind of dive into your story and your origins today, and then we can work our way into Smartsheet. Who are you? Where'd you grow up? And uh, yeah, take us back. I grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut. And actually, though, my family roots are from Tennessee. So I really, most of my family still live in the South, Tennessee, Georgia, some of North Carolina. But my mom and dad moved up to New York when they were 19 and uh, started a life there. And then I was born in New York City, grew up in Connecticut, uh, went back to Tennessee for college, Vanderbilt University. And then when I graduated college, I went to New York City to kind of start my career. I was looking to get into Wall Street really interested in learning more about how the stock market worked because when I was a sophomore, my summer job was babysitting and I made about $350. And my then boyfriend, who I didn't marry, but my then boyfriend told me about a stock called Dentomed Industries. And I'm like, well, it's a dollar a share. I can buy, you know, a hundred shares or 300 shares. And so I bought the stock and it went up like to $18 a share. So I wanted to, I was really curious about how the market worked. 
So that's where I started my my career. That's a great first experiment to run. Um, so I'm curious, what happened after that experiment? Did you double down? Did you start to get more into uh, stocks and investing? The short term was I sold that stock to fund some of my trip to France, where I spent my junior year abroad. So that was mostly where I spent the money. Um, yeah, I started to 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 invest in the market. I mean, I'm not like a an expert or anything like that, but yeah, I definitely have enjoyed looking at uh, companies, looking at uh, their future, their strategies, how their financials look. It's been something I've always had a passion for and, and why I, I think after I was at Merrill Lynch for two years, I ended up going to University of Chicago Business School, majored in finance and accounting and marketing. And then I started my career in corporate development at Sara Lee Corporation and eventually got into treasury, um, eventually got into investor relations, eventually became a CFO of a public company. And so it's really important to understand how Wall Street thinks, how investors make decisions. And I think that that is something that Silicon Valley, they're still trying to wrap their heads around, right? There's a bit of a disconnect in terms of valuations and the future for companies. Do you feel like Wall Street and Silicon Valley are aligning more now? Or do you feel like are they separating in terms of philosophies and uh, ideas about building companies? Well, I think there's a good two-way dialogue. So as a company, uh, you're going to get feedback from your early investors. You're going to have a vision and strategy from your founders and then eventually other employees that join the company. Um, and then as you grow, you will get lots of feedback. Um, sometimes it's, hey, you're spending too much. Other times it's, you're not spending enough. This is a huge market opportunity. You should be investing heavily. And then you get ready to go out as a public company. The first thing public company investors will ask you if you're not profitable is what is your path to profitability? And so what I've done, because we're not yet profitable, is really seek to understand what what investors are looking for. And because of our revenue growth rates at Smartsheet, which are well in excess of 40% a year, wow. investors have told us right now they would like us to be investing because the market opportunity is big. We're a leader in this space and they would like us to maintain all of that and capture the opportunity. And I'm curious to know at Vanderbilt and then uh, later on at Chicago, were there any key teachers, professors, figures uh, that really helped guide you or there's models, but then there are also anti-models. If there's anybody that maybe pointed you in the wrong direction, uh, I would love to hear about that as well. You know, there were no teachers that stood out as some that, you know, sort of influenced my decision making. I will say somebody once asked me, uh, what was the one thing I learned in business school that was wrong or didn't make sense? And I thought about it and I said, you know, that markets are efficient mm -hmm. because, yeah, markets are they're kind of efficient, but they're very emotional. And with emotions, that's not always very efficient, in my opinion. So I love that. Let's expand that answer <laughs> a little bit, because I think that's a, a powerful challenge, right? Because so many people look at a market or look at a space and say everything's factored in. They have all the information. There are no counterpoints, um, but there are. And we're actually as uh, investors or whoever we are, we're free to make our own bets with skin in the game and prove the market wrong. How efficient do you think that markets are? Or is there uh, a lot of opportunity anymore? Or do you feel like markets are becoming more and more efficient over time? Or is the opportunity the same as it's always been? I think that we all have, we have access today to a lot more information. So when we were making investment decisions 20 to 25 years ago, I mean, you had limited access to the full spectrum of information. And often it was delayed. You know, if you wanted to get a, a 10Q or a 10K, you'd have to order it, right? It right. wasn't like real time online. So today information is available much sooner and there's much more of it. I mean, one of the things that I do when I look 
for a potential stock investment is I go to Glassdoor right. and I read all of the bad stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I don't read the good stuff because I do think it's somewhat influenced by HR at times or people at the company who write very positive reviews. So I look at the stuff that people are challenged by and then mm. I get a sense for if, if there's consistency in that, maybe that is actually something that's happening. What I do think happens sometimes is how the market reacts. And there, there are times where I've seen the market overreact or maybe even underreact to something. And that's the part that's really hard to get a sense of because it's people's emotions. It's what they're thinking at the time. Right. It is what it is. And, and we all know that we our behaviors change over time. Right. And irrational emotions can persist for years, decades, sometimes amongst groups. Yeah. So. Well, and that's why it's important when companies make mistakes, right, that we've all learned that we could be in the penalty box, not for a month, but it could take six to nine to 12 months before you get out of the penalty box. Right. And so that's where, you know, it can be a challenge when maybe it was just a small mistake. You just missed your numbers by a little bit. But investors were very, very particular about companies doing what they say they're going to do and right. executing well. Yeah, it gets back to predicting the future accurately, right? It's uh, it's hard. Highly right? sought after. It's very hard, but it's highly sought after. So Jennifer, I'd be curious to know, what was your path like to becoming CFO? Because obviously it wasn't easy. And uh, I would love to go back to kind of when you knew what was the moment or series of moments maybe that you knew being a CFO was possible and that you wanted to do it. Sure. Um, so I will say that when I started my career, I had no plans of being a CFO. Um, I did not really know what I wanted to do. So I started out on Wall Street um, exploring this, learning about the markets I then went to business school. I then went in back into finance at Sara Lee Corporation. And I was in a, a rotation program. So corporate development for one year, financial planning and analysis for one year. And then I ended up in treasury. And in treasury, I really found my passion. I really absolutely loved the fact that the treasury function looked at the overall capital structure and financial health of the company. And at the end of the day, we know what matters. And I know you as a founder and a company you're building right now, what matters is how much money are you generating into that bank account over time? So the P&L could show you that you're actually losing money, but you might be making money from a cash flow perspective. So right. I've always been focused on the cash flow aspect of the business. At that moment, I was probably 26 or 27. I decided I wanted to be a, a treasurer of a big company mm -hmm. before I was 40 years old. That was my goal. And so for the next 10 years, I spent basically doing any job in treasury that came my way. I would raise my hand and say, yep, I'll take on that special project because I wanted to learn more about that. In 1996, I was offered an opportunity to go six months to the Netherlands uh, to our treasury there. And I said, well, it sounds great, but I'd actually like to go for two years, three years. I had a five-year-old at the time and I didn't want to, she was just starting kindergarten. So I wanted to make sure she had time uh, to kind of learn. And, and so that was my goal. So in 2000, I left Sara Lee and I went to Cisco and I was there until 2003. I was their assistant treasurer effectively. In 2003, I got a call to be the treasurer of eBay, which was absolutely my dream job. It was a company at the time about a billion in revenue. And so I would be their second treasurer, but there was a lot of building to do. And that was what really excited me. So whatever I didn't know, I'd figure out along the way. Sure. So was that, in, sorry, I have to jump in. Was yeah. that intimidating at all, making the switch from Sara Lee into tech, especially after the dot-com crash? It, so in 1999, when I got back from Europe, I wrote down on paper, what was I missing in terms of what I needed to have to be a treasurer. And one thing I missed was, well, I didn't really know about 401k plans. But the second thing that I observed in the market was this new technology, the internet was changing the way we worked. And I did not know how it operated at all. 
And I wanted to learn that. And so I made a goal to try to get into a company, um, a, a leading edge tech company that was growing fast. And it just so happened a conversation I had with a banker friend of mine uh, brought me the attention that there was a role at Cisco uh, to be the European treasurer. Well, I had just been in Europe. So I had that skill set. Right. So I figured, well, I can bring them that knowledge and they can tell me, teach me what a router is. Sure. And so that's how I ended up going to Cisco. And it wasn't super intimidating because- it was such a fast moving market at the time. Everybody was learning. It was so exciting. Right. Um, a lot we, more freedom to experiment in markets that tons. are growing and companies that are growing. And in fact, back then, Cisco was primarily known as a hardware company, but they wanted us to eat our own dog food. So we actually had a dedicated IT and developer team to help build software platforms for us to operate our internal business. Very cool. And to me, that was really exciting. And it really, I think about back then and where we are today, everybody is doing that. But Back in 2000, really, there were only a few companies that were investing in that kind of capability. From the moment you started to get into tech at Cisco and eBay, I'm guessing that the, your rate of learning probably was skyrocketing, right, as you're tackling bigger and bigger challenges. Um, did you already speak French at this point? And, and how, how was that uh, taking the new role? Yeah, so I spoke French from having majored in that, one of my degrees when I was in college. Um, I didn't really use it so much when I was at Cisco, because we were predominantly a, a U.S.-based sort of U.S. or English-speaking uh, company. But certainly when I was at Sara Lee, we had acquired a lot of companies all over Europe. And when I spoke to our French uh, hosiery company called DIM, I would speak to them in French. And I actually, again, I really enjoyed it because it's fun to try to improve, you know, what you can do. And, you know, I loved always getting compliments that I spoke French well, even though I don't think I really did speak French well. <laughs> It's often the attempt, I right? I tried the my best. Attempts yeah. with a lot of effort can be endearing and like, yeah, yeah. They're, they're great. But going back to um, sort of my career in, uh, so I was at, I was in tr the treasurer of eBay and PayPal because at the time we were one company from 2003 to 2010. And in 2008 was probably one of my biggest challenges as a treasurer. That was the whole financial crisis. And we just had so much exposure. I mean, we had billions of dollars of our own cash plus customer cash, PayPal's customer cash. We had derivatives with these banks. We had investments with these banks. We had our cash management accounts with these banks. And so that was like the biggest test for me of, am I a good treasurer or not? Or is my team, how is my team operating? Uh, we, I think we handled it really, really well. But after it, I didn't want to do treasury anymore. I realized that, okay, I have climbed the biggest mountain you could possibly climb as a treasurer. We made it. We yeah. succeeded. We got through it. Now I want a new mountain to climb. And that's when I lobbied um, for several years uh, to do investor relations at eBay. And finally, after several attempts and being told no, um, I was given the opportunity in 2010 to become the head of investor relations, as well as head of corporate financial planning and analysis. And I'd never done either one of those roles. So it was a definitely a big challenge. But I think that's was the opportunity that I needed to start thinking about myself later as a potential CFO. So as you're starting to think of yourself more as a potential CFO, you're in the trenches every day doing the investor relations. That's got to be a nerve wracking job, or it seems like it would be a bit anxiety producing for me because you're, you know, you're always juggling what the company is doing with what expectations are. You're trying to predict the future. It's hard to predict the future. I would be curious to know, are there any big lessons or takeaways that you learned in your time doing investor relations? 
I love investor relations. I don't get anxiety over the things you just mentioned because I know that it's my job to help investors obtain the information they need to make an assessment on whether they're going to buy or sell our company. Sure. When I first got into the role and I really didn't know what I was doing, to be quite honest, I decided I needed to quickly learn. And I went and took the some of our top analysts, sell side analysts, out to dinner. And I said, tell me what your expectations are. What do you want? I spent a lot of time listening. The second thing that I did was I went and met with the best IR professionals and I got their perspective. And so I had some really good mentors, even though maybe they didn't know they were my mentors, they were mentors to me that helped me get an understanding of what this role was about. And at eBay, we had had some challenges. We had overpromised, underdelivered. Not every investor was happy with how we had handled ourselves. So first I spent a lot of time just listening. What were they bummed out about? What what had we not done that we could have done differently? And I tried my best to assess that and then address it. And so, you know, the two years that I ran IR at eBay, our stock doubled. I mean, we'd been in the doldrums for a while. I was ranked actually number one in internet by institutional investor uh, for the internet space by the sell side. And what, you know, I, I was really shocked when I was awarded that. And I was like, well, what, what did I do? And, and they said, you know, Jenny, you listen. And a lot of times investors will ask questions and the, the company won't answer them very yeah. directly. They kind of go around. My style of working is you ask me a question and I answer the question. Um, and I'll say, hey, did I answer your question? And if I didn't answer it, you know, I keep going. And so I think they felt heard. And that was something that, you know, I just, I love hearing from them. I learn a lot from investors. So that's sort of how it operated. Very cool. And I think active listening is something that never goes out of style. It's a skill you can build, but then you can lose in, you know, a moment and you always have to keep building it and building it. I'd be curious to know at eBay, how did you make the transition out? And as you left, did you feel good about the work you accomplished? Were there any, you know, were there any major victories where afterwards you knew, okay, I got to go to the next challenge now? Yeah, I decided to leave eBay when I received some pretty difficult feedback. It was great feedback, though. You know, eBay at the time, I think we were starting to go through a bit of, you know, challenges. And some feedback I got about three months before I left was, hey, Jenny, you need sharper elbows. You're too nice. And they were right. I kind of did need sharper elbows. I needed to be a bit more aggressive, a bit more um, assertive. But I didn't operate that way. Like authentically, I am much more of a, an inspiring leader. I enjoy working together as a team. I love supporting everyone around me. And sure. I love it when I get supported back. Definitely. I'm yeah. not super political. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Sure. And I don't even enjoy it because it doesn't feel like companies are then really looking outside that they're kind of sometimes fighting within themselves, right? To right. look good. And so when this individual told me told me about that, I knew that even though I loved my job, um, I was dedicated to IR at that time, I would probably not be at eBay for much longer. And uh, it was hard leaving, but at the same time, I had been at working only at big companies my entire career. I had never worked at a small company. And I kind of wondered, could I climb that mountain? Would I be a successful executive having been at big companies with like thousands of people working at a company that had 300 people? And that was an interesting challenge to me. I wanted to try that out. And it was really interesting how it all happened with respect to me going to Box. That was sort of my hmm. first foray into a smaller company. I had actually resigned from eBay in 2011, a year before I left. 
And uh, the CEO asked me to stay. And so I said, yes, I'm pretty loyal, which can be good and bad as well. But I stayed. And while a few other things had happened along the way when I realized, oh, I may have made a mistake on this one, but I'm for right now, I'm going to focus myself on doing the best job I can do in the role that I have. So Box was a new technology that allowed my team members to collaborate better. So we could share information with our CFO in a way that he could digest it uh, through uh, technology rather than us sending him emails and PowerPoint updates every single week. And so I implemented the box technology at eBay and it was transformative and I loved it because it was so collaborative and so empowering. And I went online to look at the company and I kind of asked myself, is this a company I could work at? And then I saw the CEO and the CFO and they were 20 years younger than me. And I immediately said to myself, right or wrong, they won't hire me. I'm too old. And so I never, you know, and meanwhile, followed they're up. thinking like, we need people who have wisdom. <laughs> like, Maybe they did. <laughs> but it was interesting. About six months after that, I got asked to speak at a conference on world-class investor relations. And it was really predicated on the award that I had gotten a few months before. And after this presentation, a consultant from Deloitte came up to me and asked me if I would be willing to spend an hour with an up-and-coming founder who had just been anointing, anointed the CFO of this startup in the Bay Area. And I was like, yes, of course. I mean, like I said, I love to help other people. Sure. I said, yes, who is it? And it turned out to be Dylan Smith from Box. And so he and I got together and clicked immediately. And at, after our meeting, he said, you know, we're kind of looking for people like you. So if you'd ever consider leaving eBay, you know, we'd love to talk to you. And that was sort of an opportunity that helped me make that transition in that I already had someone to talk to, someone to consider when I decided to leave eBay. Very cool. And so this, when you're joining Box, this is uh, prior to IPO because you, I think you were, at, you were at Box during the IPO. Yes. And so, yeah, what was that uh, ride like, you know, jumping into Box and then building up past the IPO? It was so exciting. The culture was so different. That's just to start off with. There was this element of huge support for each person. We worked so well together as a team the business was growing really fast. Box had an awesome technology. Aaron Levy is funny and inspirational and passionate and all the things that, you know, you want out of a CEO. So it was a great time. At the same time, I mean, we were scaling very quickly. Uh, we were spending a lot of money. And, you know, so it wasn't all uh, roses and, you know, lemons, great things, right. but it was it was an exciting time. So after Box, what's on your radar and um, what was the next jump for you? Well, so I was at Box for three years and about three months before I left, I got a call from the same recruiter that recruited me into eBay and he had a public company CFO position available and I wasn't looking and I wasn't really interested, but you know, this was maybe about a year after the book came out um, from the Facebook uh, COO, Cheryl Sandberg sure. about leaning in. And he's like, Jenny, you're not leaning in you could be a CFO right now. And I'm like, well, I really like it here. And he goes, well, you should just go talk to this company. And I thought, well, I'm not going to get this job. I've never been a CFO, but I agreed to go and interview. And to my surprise, I got the job. And because it was a CFO position, because it was a public company CFO position, and because what they were really looking for was skills that I had, which were really, you know, the investor relations and the planning function, the guiding function, I accepted the position and took it. 
And uh, it was, you know, that was scary. I would have to say, you know, I felt a bit of um, anxiety coming into that job because I'd never worked for a CEO before mm-hmm. and wasn't really sure of what the role was in its totality. But, um, you know, I navigated through it. I think one of the most important things as a new CFO is you have to make sure you have a great team behind you in the areas where maybe you don't have a lot of skill set. Me, accounting. I mean, I was in accounting a concentration, but I didn't have a CPA. So I needed someone who's very technical to be there on my side. Um, but it was fun. I mean, we there were definitely hard times at that company, but I enjoyed it. However, what I didn't really love was the industry itself. Being in the coupon industry, it just didn't, like I didn't wake up and get excited about, I didn't even use the product. So when I got another recruiter call about nine months, 10 months into the role to become, to potentially become the CFO of Smartsheet, I was really excited because right. it would give me the opportunity to go back into SaaS. And uh, that's what I was really looking for. So why is SaaS so exciting to you other than maybe a cash flow from, from a cash flow standpoint and all the financials? I'm curious, what else appeals to you about the subscription space and software and working with enterprises? So I think it's the technology itself. I mean, I have been working since 1985. When I started working, I didn't have a computer. I didn't have a cell phone. The world was very, very different. And today, the power of of all of these applications that we have to just make our jobs so much easier and allow us to make such an impact um, on our customers and in the work environment, that's what really inspires me. And I think back, wow, if I had had that when I was at this company, so much more I could have done. Right. So what I love about it is just what the technology actually does. The way you earn money on it, the software as a service, this reoccurring subscription, that is a, a very efficient way to run your business. And with SaaS, you tend to not make money the first year or two because it costs a lot to get that first customer. But then as, that cust- as you retain that customer, you become very profitable. I would love to get your take on some uh, popular acronyms that get thrown around in SaaS. And then maybe you could share about maybe some big mistakes that you see founding teams or executives making around them. Let's start with uh, cash flow. This is something that is people know it's important. What are some of the common mistakes that CEOs or CFOs make when it comes to cash flow? If you are a good CFO, right? It, chances are you're going to be watching your cash flow very carefully right? because what you can't do is invest more than you have. And if you invest too much and you need to raise more capital and the capital isn't available to you when you need it, that's a big mistake, right? You can end up having to close your business down or sell your business at very unfavorable terms. Sure. So I think it's really important for new companies in the SaaS space to really get an understanding of how much money they need to raise uh, and to make sure they're raising in advance. Mm-hmm. At Smartsheet, I was very impressed when I got there and saw that the company had only raised $50 million. They'd been in business for 10 years and they still had $35 million of cash wow. on their balance sheet. And so we basically lived within our means. Right. But as I was there another year, we decided to raise another $50 million. And we didn't spend until we had the money. So it gave us the flexibility to control our own destiny. And I think that's really important. Do you think simple principles like that tend to get left out of most companies that are on the venture track? Or do you think there are a lot of executive teams that are willing to get the principles right first? 
Well, I think the best companies get the principles right first, right. right? And the ones that don't do that take on more risk. And with more risk, maybe there's more return, but there's also more downside. And let's shift over to another variable. So there are many execs that listen, a lot of folks in the SaaS and software space here in the Valley listen to the podcast. And cost to acquire customers is a problem for many, many folks out there. They're uh, worried about CACs continuing to rise and Unfortunately, many people have been investing a lot of money into ad networks that are a bit like casinos where the house always wins. So now people are looking for alternatives to get their CAC down. Uh, is there anything interesting you're seeing out there that strategies or tips for people that are looking to lower their CAC? Before we went public, I didn't really look at CAC all that much. But the reason why is that at Smartsheet, when we started out, we acquired a customer basically all online. We had no direct sales force, which tends to be higher cost. We also didn't do a lot of advertising. I was able to take on a company that had been very smart with respect to their their CAC. So encouraging other companies to think about how they can acquire customers more cheaply, um, maybe starting off with an online. I mean, online subscriptions, setting up the business without having to have a heavy sales force to start is a really great thing. Sure. So how can you do that the most effectively, right? As we then got to a space where we were doing fine, but we felt that having a direct sales force would help bring that awareness to our existing customer base mm -hmm. and the individuals, the business users within the existing customer base. That's when we started to hire a direct sales force. What's great though, is that we manage CAC in three different ways. We look at LTV to CAC, we look at payback, and we look at the magic number. And these are things that investors told me were important to them. So I asked the investors like, okay, what kind of CAC ratio is a good number? Because for me, I really wasn't sure. And they said, anything above five is good. And so we calculated our LTV to CAC and ours was seven. I'm like, oh, I think that's good. And so we track it every single quarter. And if that number started to trend down to below five, which by the way, there's a long way to go on that before that happened, we'd probably start sitting back and saying, okay, what can we do differently here? Because it is something that is important to investors. So any advice for startup or a, a young company where you already have those ratios, where you're already at seven or above, other than step on the gas in terms of LTV to CAC ratios? That is step into it's the, the gas. signal, right? You don't have, you may, you could be less efficient, I guess is what they would say. Right. For those who have a worse CAC, I do think they have to go back and look at their business model, their go-to-market because they will not thrive relative to the competition if their CAC is significantly and materially below what others have. Gotcha. And I'm curious to know too, what are your thoughts on the debt market right now? Because there are a number of banks and new type of lenders that are very aware of the importance of tracking your SaaS metrics. Mm -hmm. And so as a company, once you have those metrics and can prove things like you know your LTV to CAC ratio and things like that, you can get very favorable terms on debt. Is debt something that founders and executive teams are forgetting about in the early stages? Or, you know, what's the right amount of debt for early stage companies to consider taking on? I would say really early stage companies should be careful mm -hmm. about debt just because they may have to pay it back. Right. Well, they will have to pay it back. When the debt matures, if they aren't able to pay it back or if they aren't able to roll it over into new debt or equity, again, that's another reason why you may not succeed as a company. So very early, I think taking on equity capital is smart. Right. However, if you're free cash flow positive and you feel really confident in your future cash flows, borrowing, line of credit, having that flexibility, I think that is a really good way to do it. And in terms of smart sheet, I am always looking at every possible way I have out there to finance the business. 
such that if I need it, I know I can go to it. And building the relationships with your bankers early. Because <laughs> if you're ma- if you're losing money, I mean, no matter what, I mean, I've been like I said, treasurer for twenty years plus. Right. They know me. They know I've never ever lost them money. But still, bankers are nervous, and all of the requirements by the Fed, they're going to be weary to lend a company money unless they have good financials. Definitely. And I think what's interesting too about the bank for early stage companies and why that's so appealing is because there's not a lot of pitching involved. The bank has the numbers and you know you can look at it, they can verify it. So just in terms of a time standpoint, I think it's very attractive uh, and we're going to see a lot more of that. I know SVB is pushing into this space and there's many others. I was curious, can you share any of the maybe more esoteric or experimental financing options that you're considering right now? Is there anything new in the space that's uh, that you're just starting to investigate? There isn't really, like none that I've seen. Sure. We we went public, so we'd always raise capital. We, I think we did a loan before I joined, but that was paid off. That was pretty high cost, so I'm also always looking at overall best cost. Definitely. But we, ra- we went public in April of last year. We raised $165 million, roughly. And then we just did a secondary back in June. We raised $375 million in the secondary. Sometimes bankers pitch you convertibles. Convertibles really debt. And I'm not a big fan of convertibles, to be honest. I just think there's a lot of risk Mm -hmm. to convertibles. I'd rather wait and then do equity a year later rather than doing convert now and maybe I don't need the money. You have to be careful about putting too much capital on your balance sheet and just letting it sit there earning, what do we get, 2% interest today? Yeah, because if anybody's looking from a capital allocation standpoint, that's really going to hurt you. There's one new thing, I think ARR loans, annual reoccurring revenue loans. I think that's a great idea because companies like ourselves we don't have positive operating uh, profits right now. We have negative free cash flow. There's a good reason for it. But if you don't have something like an ARR number to back it, banks have had a hard time lending. And so we've had a couple of banks come to us lately and say, we're going to be start providing ARR loans, oh, very which cool. basically is just limited by how much annual reoccurring revenue you have. But very I think cool. it's really good because it solves a problem that has existed within the SaaS market for a while. And are they looking for multi-year contracts? Are they, you know, and obviously their dream case is having two-year, three-year contracts. Are they just talking about, you know, one-year annuals that renew or what's, what are the details there? So one-years have the lowest capital requirements for banks relative to what kind of risk they can take on. Companies would much prefer to have three-year deals. What we've looked at is a one-year deal that allows optionality for us to renew for another year and another year. So that basically reduces the administrative costs of having these transactions in place while making it easier for banks to lend. This is really helpful. And uh, thanks for humoring all all these uh, questions. I'm personally interested in these, but I feel like it's very important to help share kind of like the mindset of a CFO with a broader audience because the uh, CFO's voice is often hid behind like comms and PR and legal. So this is uh, this is exciting to get your perspective on the business and and what Smartsheet is. So which brings us to an important point. How do you describe Smartsheet to someone who's interested? They're asking questions about it. How do you pitch the company and product? This is a great question because the market that we play in has been a little bit hard to understand. It's a very important market. Gartner's recognized it as a potentially big market, but to get people's arms around the fact that I would tell you that you can manage your day-to-day work today, that which is basically 60% of your work is unstructured. It's ever-changing. 
Yes. Smartsheet <laughs> helps you manage that better. So, you know, think about this podcast that we're having today. We could have shared information through a Smartsheet. Gotcha. You can create a dashboard on top of multiple Smartsheets. Let's say you have a timeline of all of these people that you're speaking to, uh, to track to your investors. Your investors can actually oh, cool. see all the things that you're doing. And then let's say there is a an element on your dashboard that's all operating within Smartsheet, by the way, that says, you know, Jennifer Saran's coming to speak and they're curious to see what kind of questions you're going to ask me. They could click on it and they could see it. Now, if you allowed them to collaborate with you on that, that one sheet, they could add some more questions for you. You would never have to email them. You would have to do nothing. Let's say that you had a process where you wanted all of your investors to review each of the sets of questions each week. You could send a reminder notice to them automatically in Smartsheet every time you're getting ready for a podcast, whatever particular time, for them to make sure they put their review it and put their Very questions cool. in. Yeah. So these are some things that you can use. Um, let's say it. you needed to get approvals. Let's say you had the final set of questions and yeah. you needed to get the approvals from the company, the person presenting and um, your investors. You can do all the workflow approvals within Smartsheet well, and then it's all tracked there. It's in one location. It's not on email. Let's say you were a public company, which you're not. And let's say that this was part of your SOX controls that, you know, the company approved the questions and your investors approved the questions. You could give them view access to the sheet. It would all be there and you're done. So the amount of things that you can do to manage your work is really what Smartsheet handles. We have over 5 million users today, over 80,000 companies, and we have over 2,000 documented use cases. Wow. And that's one thing that people get confused about. You mean I can use this for finance and marketing can use it and this industry, healthcare can use it and government can use it? Yep, that's what Smartsheet can do. I love it. And I think too, it kind of moves us to a place where it's a more real-time working environment where things can be dynamic and things can be a bit more fluid because the challenge with the 60% of work that is kind of on demand, that information isn't shared as quickly sometimes, right? So other people don't have context. So are there any uh, customer stories or examples you can share about teams like before and after, or maybe during, like while they're using the product, what is it helping them do or accomplish? Maybe I'll use the example of the prior company I worked for. Yeah, perfect. Because we were actually using Smartsheet, which by the way, I didn't know about it because this (laughs) is a business uh, user-driven platform. So our product team discovered Smartsheet. The plans that they had to build and enhance our functionality, they put into Smartsheet. That helped them speak with the developers who were building the functionality. And we used that platform to review product enhancements, status updates. And so what it did was it allowed us to better understand how plans were tracking, where things were going well, where things maybe were stalled and where they were stalled, folks that could help remove barriers can do that much more quickly. And then also it made both the developers and the product team more accountable for deadlines, for hitting deadlines. Sure. Yeah. So that's a perfect example. What does Gartner or other institutions, what market do they view you in and what market do you view yourself in? The market I think that we view ourselves in, which they are now believing is also the right market is called collaborative work management, CWM. You know, this market, there's, there's messaging platforms and, you know, you think about um, communication platforms. So messaging, Slack, communication, Zoom, 
we collaborate with these kinds of platforms, but we're sort of in the work management space. And it is a, it's a newer space. I mean, it's not, uh, we were really lucky when we went out, we were absolutely the first to market, I would say. And, you know, we continue to enhance the product so that we continue to have that leadership position. Is there any optimal team size that it, you feel is like, you know, the best fit for SmartFit or does it, you know, adjust to teams, you know, from 10 people to 10,000? Yeah, I think it's valuable for everyone. I think small businesses get a lot of value out of it because they don't have a lot of money to spend on systems. Um, and so they look for things that help them work more efficiently without having to invest in a lot of developer, you know, IT expense. So we get up and running quickly. You know, there's some training involved, but I think it's a really effective platform for small and medium-sized businesses. At the same time, I mean, big companies have similar challenges. So we typically land at big companies within a certain department, a certain smaller department, and then begin to expand over time. And what's your favorite beachhead or department to uh, to target inside companies? You know, it typically is starts in the operations department, but it could be anything. It could be IT PMO, it could be marketing operations, it could be finance, it could be audit. It's fascinating. It, you know, you can start in product, you can start in engineering. So the customer journey start from all over the All the over map. the place. Very cool. So Jennifer, as you are continuing your role as a CFO and progressing in your career, I'm curious to know, what are your information gathering routines like? How are you learning and how are you making sure that your, you know, knowledge is, uh, you know, the industry standard or the best of the best? Within the company, I start with um, with Smartsheet. Like we have lots, 50 dashboards and mine are all linked to my overall CFO dashboard. So if I want to drill down into what's happening in our brand advertising campaigns, I can click and there is all the information. So, so cool. a yeah. lot less than that. In terms of other like information, it's it's reading online, it's reading financial reports, financial analyst reports. I have a big network. And in fact, I'm meeting someone who's a CFO of a security company for lunch today, dying to hear what he's up to. He's also curious to hear about the IPO process. That's what, one of the reasons we're having lunch. So leveraging my network, leveraging anything online that I can get a hold of to to read from. And you've mentioned those in-person conversations a couple of times, whether you were taking out analysts to lunch or, you know, joining your friends for lunch. I feel like those in-person interactions are where information sharing can happen at such a fast rate. Do you feel like our workplace today or Silicon Valley or tech broadly, have we forgotten the importance of in-person interactions and in-person relationships or is it alive and well and we just don't see it? I mean, from what I see, it's alive and well. Yeah. I am constantly getting email requests to give someone some advice on something. Uh, they often, they'll reach out through LinkedIn tomorrow night. I'm having dinner with a CFO of another company and the Bellevue area. I'm really fascinated to hear what he's been up to um, and his business, which is very different than mine. So I think that networking is so important. Right. And people who realize the value of networking are out there doing whatever they can. They're just doing it. They're not talking about it. Yeah. And there are other people who struggle with it. Right. You know, they say, you know, I don't like going and doing these things. But, you know, I think it's something that people need to learn, need to do yeah. some of anyway. Yeah. And it's something, too, that, you know, if you're an introvert or something like that, sometimes it just takes a little bit of time until you find those individuals that you click with. Maybe it's a different industry or different role, um, but keep trying because they're definitely out there. What about when it comes to like periodicals, books, music, podcasts? What are you checking out right now? And what was the last book you read? The last book I read was Discover Your Strengths. And uh, I love that book. And in fact, when any time a person joins my team, I give them the book and I say, 
take the test and tell me what your top five strengths are. And then we have a grid within Smartsheet of all of the leadership team and then my team. And we put people's strengths. And it's so helpful to know like strategic. Strategic is an important element. My EA, one of her top five strengths I learned is strategic. So when there's something going on that I'm trying to figure out the best position, the best way to position it, I mm. go to her and I say, hey, can you think about this? What's the best way to tackle this? And she has that strategy view. Are there any fiction books you're reading or have you any favorites from the past? Not really, no. What about fiction series? If you have time, are you watching anything on Netflix, HBO, or do you not watch? Uh, I, don't want, I don't really watch TV. I mean, I spend, I watch the news. Sure. I watch CNBC. But in terms of... Uh, Netflix stories. I've watched a few movies lately that people have recommended, but most of the time, you know, I'm working or I'm talking to people, having dinner. I'm a pretty social person. Sure. I'd rather be out and about than reading a book or watching TV. Do you find being more social or having those in-person meetings, is that energizing for you? Is that, Very. yeah, gotcha. Yeah. yeah. What's energizing for me is um, hearing their stories. And oftentimes people reach out because they want help. They're, mm -hmm. they're struggling with, I have a, woman who's starting a new CFO position next week. And she wanted some advice on, you know, things she should look out for as she gets started. And she's never been a CFO before. She's moving from VP finance and it's a great company. And so I gave her my advice and I get off the phone and I'm like, oh, I hope she does really well. Yeah. Like, I just feel really excited about that. I think in terms of like fulfillment, meaning all the best emotions, they, they always come after helping someone, right? It's like, it's great. A go-to thing. When it comes to Bay Area getaways, what are your favorite like one or two spots if you have free time? Are you going out hiking? Are you uh, what are you up to? Well, because I spend most of my time in Bellevue and Washington does have a reputation for being kind of gray and rainy. And I would say that's oh, an Washington's accurate awesome. yeah, reputation. Go in um, August. Yeah. August is fantastic. Yeah. But if you go from like October 1 until May, it can be pretty gray and rainy and yes. dark. My favorite place to come is home to Los Gatos. And uh, hang out uh, on the, I go hiking. We went hiking yesterday, three mile hike, which was really fun. Um, I like Carmel. We were at Carmel a couple weeks ago. Of course, Napa. Who doesn't like Napa? Hard to beat. <laughs> Very hard to beat. Yeah, the, uh, my wife and uh, some of the ladies on our team just got back from Napa, but they had a nice uh, little offsite and retreat. So Jennifer, when it comes to broader leadership philosophies on culture and team building and things like that. I'm curious, what's your take on culture building and how do you think about it and how are you going about it with your teams? So I think culture is absolutely critical for companies, especially today, to succeed in a competitive environment. And I'll tell you what we do at, at uh, Smartsheet, but I want to tell you a quick story about Box. Please, yeah. So a month after I got to Box, I was called up to talk to the president of the company. He wants to talk to every VP and above within the first month of them being there. And he calls me up and he says, hey, Jenny, what is our culture? And I pulled out the little card, right? And on the card, it has these phrases. It says, um, take risks, fail fast, think 10x, make mom proud. Um, so I started reading those off and he kind of stopped me middle of the way. And he's like, no, that's not our culture. Culture is what you do every day. And, you know, for the first time, I realized that I actually had the ability to influence culture. At other companies, I was, you know, I could influence culture, but really it was whatever the management team at the top said we should do. Right, whatever they wanted and, to focus on. And yeah. sometimes, you know, what was written on the card and what the culture really was, not the same, right? And so he gave me a very unique perspective on that. So, at Smartsheet, 
What I love about our culture is it combines two really important things. The first one is being supportive and being driven. And so our culture is we get stuff done, we execute, and that's really important for Wall Street. Like if you're going to guide to this number, you better hit that number. Maybe you even need to exceed that number. Um, But it's also supportive. Things happen, right? Things don't always go as you hope they would go. And the first thing that I see my colleagues do at Smartsheet, including our CEO, is, hey, I see this isn't going as well as it should. What can I do to help? And so that is kind of like the best culture that I've ever worked in because it's not just driven. It's also let's stop and think about, you know, what people need to be successful. Yeah. And I think that pausing and taking a moment, checking with everybody and seeing how you're doing, that gets left out of the uh, driven equation a lot of times. So yeah, it's important to circle back. Thank you so much for being generous with your time and sharing with us here. Are there any final pieces of wisdom or thoughts that you have for our listeners? Yeah, I would say um, maybe just thinking about I'm sort of at the later years of my career now. I've been working for the last 35 years. Can't believe how quickly it's gone. But I think it's really important for everyone to know starting out that their career is their own. Mm -hmm. And there will be times when they work for people that are very supportive and actually lift them up, which is great. There will be other times when the boss doesn't lift them up, doesn't really care about their career. You'd love it to have a more supportive boss. Sometimes it's just the way it is and you have to live with the way the world is, not the way you wish it to be. So if those times happen, don't give up. Keep thinking about where you want to go. And if somebody tells you, you know, you're not that good at that, you can't, you can't do that. Hey, if you think that's what you want to do, keep going for it. Don't let people bring you down. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to say. Do You can do whatever you want. You just have to keep trying. I love it. Wise words. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a blast. All right. Thank you. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.